ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. In the 70s and 80s, it was not uncommon in Australia to turn on the nightly news and the bulletin was leading with strike action. Locked out for a second day, Wolfies could only look on as non-union labour arrived for work. The contract workers ferried in from Pier 21 despite yesterday's federal court ruling preventing Patrick's from sacking or replacing its workforce. We can't even apply for the dole until we get a separation certificate. and we, No one's even told me I've been sacked. Unionists maintain their protests throughout the day, taunting security guards. Lately, though, both here and overseas, there seems to be more picket lines in the news. The most well-known, of course, is the US Writers Guild strike, which has brought television and film to a standstill since May. I think this is a huge win, not just for the entertainment industry specifically, but also like labor unions all across America. You know, there's can be a feeling that workers have very little power in the face of giant corporations, but these strikes have proven that that's not true. The end of the strike allows America's late night talk shows to start recording again. Here in Australia, workers are threatening strike action in many industries, including the airlines, universities, oil and gas workers and even morgue workers. Today in Australia Wide, what's behind this seeming uptick in industrial action? I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajuk, country Perth. Travellers, including the resources workforce in regional WA, are scrambling to make alternate arrangements in preparation for a slew of flight cancellations pending a pilot strike tomorrow. Look, obviously it's disappointing at this time of the year, being the middle of school holidays, it's going to inconvenience many, many people and I'm sure quite a number of those will be tourists also that will be travelling for family and friends at this time of the year. So, yeah, disappointing. The strike by pilots working for Network Aviation, a Qantas subsidiary, is part of ongoing industrial action about pay. Qantas says it'll affect 50% of scheduled flights if it goes ahead. And WA pilots aren't the only workers threatening strike action. On Friday, the Maritime Union of Australia gave notice that its members would take dozens of work bans and stoppages, including 24-hour strikes from October 6th until October 20 at ports in Melbourne, Sydney, Fremantle and Brisbane. This year... There's been protests at universities, hospitals, even here at the ABC, in a fight for better pay and conditions. And last week, interestingly, morgue workers at a major Sydney morgue threatened to walk off the job. To take a look at what's this all about, my guest today is Professor Anthony Forsyth, who teaches and researches all aspects of work and law and specialises in collective bargaining, trade unions and labour hire. And he joins me from the Graduate School of Business and Law at RMIT University. Now, Professor Forsyth, it certainly feels like there's been more strikes across a whole range of sectors in recent weeks and months. Are we actually seeing more industrial action in Australia at the moment? If we look at the historical data, um, at the moment in Australia, according to the ABS statistics, for the year to June 2023, we're losing about 60,000 days to industrial disputes over the last 12 months. If we compare that to um, the one quarter, the March quarter of 1993, there were 600,000 days lost to industrial disputes, so 10 times the number that we've seen in the last year alone in Australia. And we have to link it to the um, related fall in union membership levels. So again, if we go back to the early 1990s, we're talking about over 40% of Australian workers being members of trade unions. On the latest data at the end of last year, so end of 2022, 
that's down to 12.5% and only about 8 or 9% of workers in the private sector. So definitely um, levels of industrial action have um, shrunk in Australia uh, alongside the um, concomitant fall in union membership levels. So you're saying so union membership levels have, have fallen, so too has the amount of strike action, but yet it is getting a lot of coverage in the press. What about those pockets that are deciding that they're going to take strike action. How much is the cost of living situation feeding into that appetite for, right, okay, this is the stance we're going to make? The rising living costs over the last two years in particular are definitely driving certain workers to put forward claims for bigger wage increases and industrial action to progress those claims. But it tends to only happen where you have stronger unions in place. So you mentioned the the port strikes coming up in various ports around Australia. So the Maritime Union, now part of the CFMMU, is a particularly strong union and they've got a chokehold. So when they take industrial action, it has a really big effect. What about the current collective bargaining arrangements that most people are operating under? Has that changed the numbers of people who are willing to pay those membership fees? Well, I think collective bargaining arrangements in Australia have also impacted union membership. But interestingly, we've seen reforms from the Albanese Labor government um, through amendments to the Fair Work legislation in 2022 to provide more opportunity for multi-employer collective bargaining. So in Australia, since the early 90s, bargaining has been limited to um, the single enterprise level. But because the level of bargaining has dropped off um, in the last 10 years or so, as wage outcomes have also been quite suppressed for many workers, um, the government... Uh, after being elected last year, was very keen to get bargaining moving across multiple employers in certain sectors. So if you take areas like childcare, aged care, traditionally those workers have been stuck on award-level wages. But just recently, in fact last week, the Fair Work Commission made the first decision under these new multi-employer bargaining provisions, opening up the opportunity to reach agreements across multiple employers in the early childhood care and education sector. So we're going to see further developments in that respect and uh, that opening up in other sectors of the economy as well. Do you see that as a positive development? We link this back to the earlier part of our discussion about industrial action. So when the Albanese government was implementing these reforms last year, you had a lot of business groups and industry associations claiming that this would be a wrecker for the economy, that this would take Australian labor relations back to the what the, you know what are often described as the bad old days of the 1970s with oil strikes and beer strikes and industry-wide disputation those of us who supported the reforms certainly advocated that we would not see a return to those days of industry-wide strikes because of the reduction in uh, union membership across the economy. Now, something that was a little less measured, I just wanted to play you some audio, and this is millionaire businessman Tim Garner. He made headlines for comments he made at a recent forum, I think it was an Australian, the Fin Review forum, where he suggested unemployment should increase by 40 to 50% to create more productive workers. Let's have a listen to what he had to say. We need to see unemployment rise. Unemployment has to jump 40, 50% in my view. We need to see pain in the economy. We need to remind people that they work for the employer, not the other way around. There's been a systematic change where employees feel the employer is extremely lucky to have them as opposed to the other way around. 
That's businessman Tim Garner, who was chatting a couple of weeks ago. Now, these comments went viral all across the world. What do you think it tapped into? Why was there such a response to this? I think there was such a response, including here in Australia, because it was just so out of touch with the reality that many workers are experiencing. I mean, you mentioned the COVID pandemic earlier. It was frontline workers who bore the brunt of having to front up to work each day keep the economy going, keep us all safe at great risk to themselves and their families. Coming out of that, as I mentioned earlier, we're at the end of around 10 years of suppressed wage outcomes. So wages have been flatlining. So to have someone sort of say, workers, you're a bit too spoilt and you need a bit of rough treatment to see what the world's really like. I think it just speaks volumes about the arrogance in pockets of industry. And linking this back to industrial action again, at the moment, you've got workers at a bigger dairy production facility in Penrith and others at Ingham's in several states. That's a poultry production plant uh, represented by the United Workers Union. Now, these are low-wage workers who have been taking industrial action in the case of Ingham successfully to get themselves an enterprise agreement and the bigger workers are trying to do the same at the moment in Penrith. Try telling them they're spoiled and they earn too much. It's it's just a ridiculous position. He was very much referring to an us and them sort of mentality there. Is that something that you think is felt quite keenly at the moment? Look, I think a lot of people are doing it hard in this economy. And, um, you know, the, the leap in inflation uh, a bit over 18 months, two years ago, um, linked to rising energy costs, linked to the start of the war in Ukraine. You know, inflation is tapering off. It's coming down now. So we may be getting through the worst of it. But those successive mortgage payment increases imposed by the Reserve Bank. Um, Economically, I think a lot of people in the Australian workforce are hurting. um, And that's why we are seeing um, certain workers, generally represented by strong unions like the United Workers Union that I mentioned or the MUA in your WA uh, ports example, are asserting the right to um, bigger wage increases or, or just getting their share of what they think they deserve in an economy where things are pretty tough. Let's jump back in time again, Professor Forsyth. And this is some footage from a 1976 transport strike. And this is in Sydney. It's just interesting hearing how this was discussed at the time. But as peak hour traffic built up on this morning's rain-swept roads in Sydney, it became apparent that hundreds of thousands of people were voting with their wheels to get to work, and indeed with their feet. Many walked to work in the rain over the Harbour Bridge. Traffic jammed the main arteries to the city, particularly from the west and the north. At one stage this morning, it was taking one hour to drive only six kilometres to the city centre from Glebe, one of the inner suburbs. Of the total workforce of two million, perhaps naturally it was the blue-collar workers who gave most support to the strike call. That's an ABC News report from 1976, but it does give you an idea of how the public felt about it. I'm just wondering what you think about the public's tolerance for the inconvenience caused by strike action these days. It's such an interesting contrast, that clip, Um, and it really takes us back to a society that doesn't exist anymore. I think the thing that's missing in our discussion so far um, that completes the picture is that the laws regulating union membership, collective industrial action, collective bargaining in Australia are so much more restrictive now than they were from when you played that clip from the Australia of the 1970s. So if, for example, we had a a strike that was impacting people in that way um, and it happened in New South Wales uh, uh, in a strike affecting the Sydney Trains Network in 2018, 
when that kind of industrial action is threatened, when it can inconvenience the community in that way, um, an employer can go off to the Fair Work Commission and pretty quickly get an order suspending the strike. So you have to go through all of these incredibly difficult steps, including a ballot of members and a new requirement to attend a conciliation conference in the Fair Work Commission just to be able to take lawful strike action in Australia. Um, and then it can be cancelled by the Fair Work Commission if it's going to cause harm to the community. That could happen, um, or, or harm to the economy. That could happen in the planned uh, port strike that you mentioned earlier. So I think to answer your question, public tolerance may not be that high um, for industrial disputation, but certainly the laws regulating it in Australia are incredibly restrictive, and that's also impacted um, the, the fall in union membership over the last 30 to 40 years. Professor Anthony Forsyth from the Graduate School of Business and Law at RMIT University. Thanks very much for taking some time to talk to Australia Wide today. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. The bushfire season is already underway across some parts of Australia, including in the Gippsland region of Victoria. Many locals are still recovering from the catastrophic summer of 2019-2020 and are worried about what lies ahead. Our reporter, Millie Spencer, travelled to Orbost, a town in regional Victoria that was devastated by the black summer bushfires. The sirens going off today is making, I think, everyone in town a bit nervous. That was Jenny Bartlett. She owns a shop in the main street of Orbost, a regional Victorian town in East Gippsland, which became the emergency hub for residents in the district during the 2019-2020 Black Summer bushfires. Jenny says the recent warm weather and winding conditions in Victoria, which led to 200 bush and grass fires across the past two days, makes her feel nervous about the season ahead. I think everyone's kind of like, oh, it's, you know, it's early, isn't it? It's already hot. That hot wind feels, you know, it feels kind of scary to me. I think a lot of people are feeling that too. I notice uh, even on um, online, they're saying, oh, we've got to start cleaning up the yards early. You know, people should try to get ready earlier, obviously. You know, so I try to stay informed without panicking too much, but you've got to stay on, on edge as well a bit, you know. I think the last few years when we've had, like, kind of nice and cool summers, it's been really good for people to just be able to recover. But, um, yeah, maybe we need a big community meeting to get ready and do some things that feel proactive and then you're not feeling like it's just happening to you that you can actually go, you know, I know everyone says, get ready, get ready, get your fire plan, do all that. But how many people actually do it? It's these hot and dry conditions Jenny is talking about, along with the Bureau of Meteorology's declaration of an El Nino weather pattern, which prompted the CFA to declare the start of the fire season. East Gippsland is one of the first shires in the state under the fire danger period. Fourth Lieutenant from the Orbos CFA, Michael Marshall, says it's not a surprise the fire danger period has been declared, with conditions in the east dry, resulting in a number of burns escaping properties. He says growth in the bush paired with drier conditions will make this a challenging season for the brigade. There has been a lot of regrowth, especially in the bush where it's been burnt. There's a, there's a good blanket of regrowth, probably six to eight foot tall, and that's Everything's dry underneath it, and it's going to just burn. It will burn. You, even if we have 10 mil of rain, you walk in the bush, it's still dry. Hopefully we can just pray for more rain and go from there. 
and we'll try and protect the community the best we can. He says while the land is dry, prompting nervousness in the community, people in the area are doing the best they can to prepare under the conditions. Yeah, a lot of farmers, they're putting uh, breaks in around their fence lines, cleaning all their fence lines up, putting proper actions in, keeping all their gutters cleaned, trees around the house all cut down, and yeah, just going to hope. Another factor playing on many of the community's mind is whether the machinery and human resources will be in place to prepare the forest for the upcoming season. Orbost was home to the state's native timber industry, which has since closed down seven years ahead of schedule. Forestry consultant and secretary of the Orbost Chamber of Commerce, Gary Squires, says he fears the community will be more vulnerable to catastrophic fires this season. Uh, well, the, the biggest issue is the lack of experienced uh, bush operators to fight the fires. Uh, time will tell how many uh, they, of the previous contractors they uh, sign up to, to be firefighters this year. Uh, but in the past, the government's been able to rely on all the uh, industry people to c- drop tools and come out and fight fires when it occurred. This year all those logging contractors won't be there. Uh, so the only option that's left for government is to pull in machines, say off building roads somewhere. Now those people have got absolutely no experience of working in the bush. So it's not a very good option, but it may be an option they've got to use. In past bushfire seasons, timber workers who were contracted by Vic Forest were often called on to assist forest fire management in the event of a fire. Gary says these workers were essential in preparing breaks in the forest and assisting with backburns, but these workers have packed up shop and left town. Uh, they, uh, some of them have taken fly-in, fly-out jobs. Uh, some have left the district to find work elsewhere. Others are basically just uh, still in the town but not working. But the machinery is not available. The the machinery, the contractors are, are gone. Despite the closure of the native timber industry, Forest Fire Management Victoria says they will continue to work with harvesting contractors to prepare the land for potential fires. In the meantime, the Department of Environment, Energy and Climate Action, also known as DECA, have been hard at work conducting fuel reduction burns and chemical treatments in anticipation of the season. Here's Kelly Rash, Gippsland's Regional Manager for Fire and Emergency at DECA. After 2019-20, that was just a, a massive season and it did take, just like the community, it took our people time to get over that as well. But the three quiet seasons that we've had has been a bit of a godsend really because we've had time to have some quiet time, redo our training, all those sorts of things. So, And we are preparing as best we can for this season. Um, recent fires just here in the um, snowy district just in the last couple of days um, has shown that we're able to respond and we have recovered from 2019-20 and responded really, really well to the, these recent events. Kelly Rash from the Department of Environment, Energy and Climate Action ending that story from Millie Spencer. All around the country, you're on ABC Australia-wide. Like, say, the swimming carnival, I can tell them about how, like, the races are. And as well, um, there's a big carnival, like, where we show our house colours. You've never done that before? Um, no, not really, no. Life in Australia's dusty stock routes can be lonely at times. But for a Queensland roving team, there's no better to be than horseback on what's called the Long Paddock. 
It's a long and slow process, but the team walk 2,000 head from the Gulf of Carpentaria to central West Queensland and take advantage of the feed along the state's stock route. Madeline McCusker filed this story for us. Oh, I love it. Like, where else would you want to be, honestly, you know? Mornings like this, it's just insane, yeah, for sure. There's always something going on, you know? Like, sometimes you miss, you know, talking to people, but it's great, yeah, just wide open spaces. Yeah, I love it. I really do, yeah. My name is Madeline McCosker, and I'm standing in a paddock along the stock route between Longreach and Winton. I'm surrounded by 2,000 head of Brahmin cattle. While it sounds like there'd be a lot of noise, it's actually very quiet. Dust fills the cloudless blue sky. Drovers on horseback walk with the mob, slowly pushing them down a narrow dirt road. The quiet of the outback is interrupted only by the shuffle of hooves on black soil, a crackly message over a two-way, or a whistle to the working dogs. It's like you'd see in an old western, but this is modern cattle droving. And Bill Little has been droving Queensland's long paddock for 40 years. Married to the mob. <laughs> no, it's full on. Like We do the same thing every day. We get up early, we look after the cows all day, we try and get to bed early, just do it all again next day. Um, it has its good points and its bad points, but I'm still doing it, so it must be all right. Bill and his small team of drovers are walking this mob from Julia Creek in northwest Queensland, more than 2,100 kilometres south, to a property near Tambo in central west Queensland. They've already been on the road for three months, and doing under 20 kilometres a day, they won't arrive at Tambo until early November. Yeah, bulldog. Even with the help of 23 dogs and about a dozen horses, it's slow going for the team of four. We don't even know what day it is half the time. It's probably not everyone's cup of tea. If you want to test out your um, relationship with your partner, just go driving for a while. (laughs) And even though from the outside it may seem like something from a movie, Bill says the romance of droving wears off quickly. Well, you know, we get that all the time with the people I employ. Um, They come with that notion that you're riding along, whistling a tune and boiling the billy and all that, but they don't realise there's a lot of work in the job especially if you do it properly, you know. And it's strangely enough, the more work you do, the easier it gets. But, yeah, the romance, um, we, you know, I try and tell these people that come work for me, mm. it's not all that easy out here, you know. The big days, you get up early, it's hot. A lot of them get what we call two-week orders. The first week's a buzz, the second week they start to get tired, and the third week they're gone. So we call it two-week orders. With El Nino officially declared, cattle prices continue to fall as producers prepare for the oncoming dry. For the first time since 2019, the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator sits below $4 per kilogram carcass weight. Longreach Livestock Agent Boyd Curran is optimistic that prices won't stay low for long. Oh, look, I think the seasonal outlook is is, um, having a major impact on what's happening with cattle prices at the moment. I feel very fortunate that we've got uh, beautiful feed and we're able to take advantage um, of the lower cattle prices. And I have no doubt that when we see a break in the season, a widespread break in the season, we're going to see a major correction in these cattle prices. Back at camp and the droving team is up at the crack of dawn, packing up and preparing for another day on the long paddock. After a quick cup of coffee as the sun is rising, they saddle their horses and take down the temporary fencing. In no time, the cattle are back on the road. Young drover Lucy Spranger didn't grow up on the land, 
but after hearing about the life of a drover from a friend, she knew she was meant for that life. I had dreamed of it for a long time, actually. Yeah, when I was 15, a Lily Pilly, a friend of mine, a neighbour actually back home, she was working for Bill and told me about it, and I was like, far out, one day I've got to do that. And then I was driving up for a job in Mount Isa, and I met Bill along the way, and he said he's a drover, and I was like, oh my gosh, you know, got to go there. <laughs> and yeah, so I'd actually heard about it a while ago and thought one day, and yeah, now here I am. <laughs> and to her, there is no better job. Oh, I love it. Like, where else would you want to be, honestly, you know? Mornings like this, it's just insane, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it all just depends on where we are, what we're doing. But usually, get up nice and early, have a cup of tea along the way, have the horses walking them along. It's all pretty, um, just roving, really. It's yeah. droving every day, all day. Yeah, they keep us busy, that's for sure, and always entertaining. There's always something going on, you know? Bit of banter, something with the cattle. Yeah, they're good to work with for sure. It's pretty good actually. Like sometimes you miss, you know, talking to people, but you've got these mates and we duck into the pub along the way and things, but it's great. Yeah, just wide open spaces. Yeah, I love it. I really do. Yeah. Bad. Yeah. Makes you want to go, doesn't it? Young drover Lucy Spranger ending that story from Madeline McCosker. And that is Australia wide for this Tuesday. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you're having a lovely evening. Cheerio. ABC Listen.